The episode you're about to hear was first broadcast on April 8, 2014. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 302 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is listening to family caregivers caring for psychosis. Psychosis is sometimes called psychotic episode when the psychosis is developing noticeably quickly. Psychosis is often a symptom of a serious mental illness such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Schizophrenia may also be caused by alcohol and some some drugs and medications. And it also may be caused by brain tumors, brain infections, and strokes. Psychosis causes people to lose touch with reality because of delusions, which are beliefs that are completely false, or hallucinations, such as hearing, seeing, or feeling something that really is not there. Psychosis produces warning signs that include isolation and withdrawal, neglect of self-care and personal hygiene, high-risk behaviors such as violence or thoughts of suicide, and deteriorating school grades or job performance. The warning signs of psychosis are often first noticed by family caregivers who are mothers, mothers who bear a huge burden caring for family members with serious mental illnesses. Yet, mothers who may be obstructed in providing information to or getting information from healthcare professionals, and mothers who yet still may be experiencing some of the stigmatization of mothers who in the past the past were falsely blamed because their children developed schizophrenia. And some of the stigmatization that led mothers to found the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the largest grassroots mental health organization in the U.S., dedicated to building better lives for the millions of Americans affected by mental illness. All of which is why our topic, listening to family caregivers caring for psychosis, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Lisa Felstein. Lisa is the principal lawyer at Lisa Felstein Law Office. She's a graduate of Osgoode Hall Law School and the University of Guelph, where she studied psychology. She practices in the area of family health law, which includes providing advice relating to reproductive law, mental health law, privacy, elder law, and other matters of health law. She's worked with the legal department of Canada's largest mental health and addiction teaching hospital. She's 
She provides advice to family members in their role as family caregivers, substitute decision makers and advocates, and she represents clients for the Consent and Capacity Board. She frequently writes and presents about health law, and she's been widely published and interviewed in the media. She contributes to the community and legal profession through her student mentorship and volunteer work for blind adults and also as an executive member of the Ontario Bar Association Health Law Executive. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you very much. Right. Now let's start with the first question. Please tell us more about your career and about any experience you have in your practice or anywhere else with family caregiving. Lisa? Sure. So like most people, I have friends and family members with a variety of mental health issues and some that have required hospitalization and medication, others that have been treated through talk therapy, and some that have gone untreated. I have some frontline perspective, uh, fortunately, because actually my husband is a paramedic, and he's been a very uh, relevant source of knowledge because I regularly get to hear about the frontline experience responding to mental health calls. And this has been terrific insight because as a lawyer, I'm not typically present when the frontline professionals are doing their thing, whether that be the hospital or police or paramedics. Usually I'm, I'm called in later. Sometimes I will have clients call me as the police are en route, but this has been very valuable in terms of understanding why certain decisions are made. And then finally, professionally, I'm a health lawyer. So I did study psychology in my undergrad and focused on health law throughout law school. But then in practice, I've been working in health law. So I worked at a health law boutique providing advice to hospitals and other health sector clients and was very fortunate to spend a couple of months working within a psychiatric hospital's legal department, getting to see health law from the perspective of the organization. And then finally, in January 2013, I opened my own practice with a focus on family health law. So now I regularly see the perspective of the family caregiver. Right. Now let's follow on by asking you to tell us more about your work in family health law, particularly as it relates to the, your life since 2013 when you set up your own practice. Please tell us about that work. Lisa? Sure. So family health law is a niche that I've actually created within the field of health law, which itself is very, very broad. And that's because as a health lawyer providing services to hospitals and health sector clients, I realized that often family members were self-represented or they didn't even realize that they had legal rights and responsibilities that applied to them as family members. And a couple of times I was asked to make referrals uh, to individuals who were family caregivers and I wasn't always sure where to refer those people and I realized most of my colleagues were doing what I was doing, providing advice to institutions or clinicians or sometimes patients but not the family members. So that is why I opened the doors to my own practice to fill this service gap and the concept of family health law was is an organic one. It's still evolving what that means. But in terms of the mental health context, it means I provide legal advice to family caregivers in their role as caregivers, advocates, and substitute decision makers. And that has been very broad. Some of that is advice. So I answer questions such as, can I force my loved one to get help? Who gets to make decisions on my loved one's behalf? How can I get doctors to talk to me about my family member? If I don't agree with the doctor about the proposed treatment, will my child be taken away from me? Questions like that. I help people advocate for themselves and others. I help them understand their rights and obligations. And then in Ontario, we have a, pro a guardianship process, but in other jurisdictions, there's other process processes in place to help become a decision maker or a guardian for a loved one who can no longer make decisions for themselves. So I help with that 
role as well. Right. Now, you wrote a newspaper article which was published on March the 19th, 2014. Please tell us about that article and in particular why you wrote it. Lisa? Sure. So earlier that month, in in March 2014, there was a very tragic incident in Florida in which there was a woman, a mother, who drove her van into the ocean. And it was revealed that there were three kids in the vehicle and she herself was pregnant. And that this was actually intentional. She didn't, you know, end up in the ocean by some flood or disaster or any other kind of explanation like that. It seemed to be intentional. Fortunately, no one was hurt. But what really struck me in the newspaper articles about this is that the woman's sister called the police several hours earlier. And there aren't tons of de- there's not tons of detail in the paper, but it, it does appear she said, my sister is going on about demons, and she expressed concern saying she's trying to control her sister and, and worried about the children. And police did stop by. They did a wellness check. They asked her questions. And reportedly, they could tell that there was something, some kind of mental illness, but nothing that, were, nothing that presented grounds to really detain her. So they let her go on her way, and she was in her car with her children. And one of the officers I, I read followed her for a short time after, but there was really nothing to go on. And then a few hours later, she drove into the ocean. So I wrote this article because when I read it, it seemed like an opportunity to talk about family health law. And this issue that happened in Florida... I think could happen almost anywhere and the outcome would have been almost the same. And certainly in my own jurisdiction, I think it would have been very similar. So it presented a good opportunity to talk about the importance of listening to family caregivers. And that's not to say that didn't happen here or that the event could have been prevented, but it really highlights the importance of considering family input because clearly here the sister knew that something was wrong and she called and the outcome could have been a lot more tragic than it was. But she had very valuable input that the police didn't see it in quite the same way. I'd like to pursue that, what you just said there. That is to say the, the family, family caregivers, the family had information that would have been useful to the police. I think I, I've understood you right on that one. Why is it that that information, do you think, didn't flow from the family caregivers to the police in a situation that sounds as though it was something of an emergency. Lisa? You know, it sounds to me like the information maybe did flow. The, the real trick is what they're able to do with that information. And different jurisdictions have different laws, but usually there's some kind of mental health law that gives the police the right to detain a person, to pick them up and maybe bring them to a hospital to be assessed. And if they're given hearsay, but they show up and there's nothing out of the ordinary in the circumstances, being told that information isn't even necessarily enough. And in some jurisdictions, the law is based on actually showing up and seeing something happening in the moment. In other jurisdictions, hearsay can be listened to and considered, and the police can decide if there's generally reasonable grounds that there might be a risk of harm. But the criteria does differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So one of the challenges is even when the information does flow, will it be listened to, and are the police even able to give any weight to it? And I suppose you could ask the question of, would it be understood necessarily by the police? Now, I'm not trying to challenge, uh, you know, undermine the police authority in saying that, but these are complex matters that baffle doctors who are well-qualified, some of them, psychiatrists in this field. So it's a difficult judgment to make whether somebody is, in fact, going into a psychotic episode. Um, 
I've just made a statement. Do you in any way agree or disagree with what I've just said, Lisa? So I do, I do disagree. Sorry, I do, I do absolutely agree that it's difficult because psychiatrists and police have to make those judgment calls. And even with the best training, they will not always get it right. There are going to be people who are discharged that ought not to have been, but they didn't necessarily um, meet the criteria that was needed to keep them in the hospital or meet the criteria to be picked up. And part of the challenge is the evidence just isn't there. It's not a perfect science how to predict dangerousness or how to predict somebody risking harm to themselves or to others. The science just isn't there. And so even people with amazing training and experience won't get it right all of the time. So it is a real challenge. And I suppose there's also another challenge too, and that is um, drugs and alcohol also cause behavior that looks very strange and may be difficult to differentiate from psychosis, psychotic episodes. Is that a factor, do you think, that has to be reckoned with as well, the alcohol mm-hmm. and drugs? Absolutely, because if it's not known what's causing the behavior, alcohol or drugs or illness, it can be difficult for police to know what it is that they're dealing with and what would be the most appropriate response. And also, if there is an actual risk, for example, if the individual is holding an object that could potentially be used as a weapon, how to best respond. Is this a situation where it's a result of the mental illness illness, and maybe de-escalation techniques are appropriate? Or is this an issue um, where there's drugs and alcohol involved and maybe a different strategy would be better to deal with the individual? And, and how can they know in the moment? Uh, sometimes family caregivers will have some of that information, whether the person they believe is on drugs or on alcohol or off their medication. So sometimes that insight can come from family caregivers. And there's been a lot in the media, and this is just a quick comment to you because we'll 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 go into these matters in uh, the next segments. But um, sometimes the police are draw their weapons and shoot the individual who is behaving in this uh, aggressive, dangerous, or threatening manner. And the question then arises afterwards particularly if the individual's killed, is whether in fact this was a mental illness rather than something else. Now, that's a very big question. And I'm going to, as I say, I'm going to postpone further discussion because, as I often say, this is the point at which we have to pay our rent. That is to say, we have to take a short commercial break, which we'll do now. So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Lisa Falstein. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you a homeowner or hope to be one? Looking for the best deal or a stress-free sale? Tune in to House Talk and keep from making a costly mistake. Host Duncan Smythe will guide you through the painstaking and maybe profitable real estate process, giving you tips on everything from listing and staging to negotiating and home inspections. Overwhelming? It doesn't have to be. Let House Talk help you. Tune in Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Lisa Felstein. Our topic is listening to family caregivers caring for psychosis. So now, let's, Lisa, let's talk about the challenges created by psychosis and psychotic episodes. You've already mentioned quite a lot of them, but I want to go into more detail in this segment. So first question for you then is, what do you think are the most challenging of the challenges that family caregivers confront when they see warning signs that a family member may be starting with psychosis or psychotic episodes? What are the most challenging things that they have to deal with? Lisa? Well, some of the greatest challenges are not legal in nature at all. One of the challenges is understanding that their loved one is sick, because at the very beginning, it's not always clear that it's psychosis. The loved one might be acting bizarre or have beliefs that are delusions, but it's not necessarily clear to everybody what's going on if this is the beginning. So even just figuring out what's wrong and understanding that the loved one is sick can be very difficult. And then in turn, the individual themselves often does not realize they're sick. And that is something that comes with a variety of mental health issues is a lack of insight into the disorder. So even if the family caregiver says that you need to get help, you need to get some treatment, something is wrong, the individual might have absolutely no insight and refuse to get help. And that can be such a challenge because how can you get that person to get help if they don't want to? And that's Sometimes where the law does fit into this is there can be avenues in different jurisdictions to get that person assessed and to get them treated. Um, another uh, challenge. Sorry, go ahead. No, you, you carry on. Carry on. <laughs> another challenge is the stigma and that even if people know they ought to reach out and they can't handle the situation on their own, there can be stigma either for the individual or for themselves. So some people will worry that it will affect their loved one's employment. Some will worry that reaching out potentially calling the police if the circumstances seem to warrant it. They worry that there'll be a criminal record for their loved one, or they worry, as you mentioned in the introduction, that it reflects on them, for example, as parents, and they somehow feel blameworthy. And so it can take a while to get over that stigma and actually reach out. So the challenge might be getting over that and figuring out um, or accepting that there's an illness and they need help. And then finally, the practical circumstances can be a challenge. So there might not be resources in that person's community. Or legally, the person might be capable of refusing treatment so the resources are there. But even though the law has been explored, it's just not an avenue. The person doesn't pass the right test and or the right from the perspective of the family caregiver, and therefore they can't be assessed or they can't be treated because they won't consent. Right. Now, let's take the next question about challenges for family caregivers. Uh, where do family caregivers actually go for help when they see the warning signs that we've been talking about and what challenges do they experience in getting help 
when they, they've gone to a place where they believe that they can get it. Lisa? Well, to me, the, it seems the first place people go is Dr. Google, and that they try to figure out what's going on, type some things, and come up with their own diagnosis and get some information. A lot of people speak with their own doctor. Many people try to get their loved ones to see uh, their own family doctor, so his or her family doctor, and try to get assessed. And as I mentioned before, that doesn't always uh, go so well if the person doesn't think anything is wrong. If there's an immediate risk of harm, sometimes they look for help by calling the police because they don't know what else to do. And sometimes they actually drive the individual right to the hospital. And that can happen particularly in circumstances of a suicide risk when they want to take that person to the hospital immediately so that there's not an opportunity for something to happen before treatment can be uh, administered or, or be, um, to begin. And then, of course, there's there are those opportunities for help, but then there's practical challenges to all of those. So when the police show up or when the individual is brought to the hospital, the person might be able to present as calm and rational, and all of the symptoms that they were showing before they've managed to mask because they appreciate the seriousness of the situation, the presence of police and hospital can affect that. And so the family caregiver can struggle to convince the people in the position of power to get them through into the system. It's hard to convince them of what they were just witnessing if the person is, if their loved one is behaving, behaving completely calm and rationally. Getting a bed can be a challenge. As I mentioned, resources in small towns, but even in big cities like the one that I'm from, sometimes there's just not a bed available and the hospital wants to help and there isn't room for the individual. There's just not enough resources or there's not enough resources in community programs. And then finally, there can be the emotional challenges, particularly around calling the police. Some people don't want to call the police on a loved one because, it, as I mentioned in my article, it can be traumatizing. It can make that person feel scared and intimidated. It can make the caregiver feel like they're the enemy calling the police because they know it often won't be perceived as a supportive gesture. Um, and it can be degrading. This is a health issue, and, and yet we're calling the police. We're treating sick people like criminals, and a lot of people do not want to have to pick up the phone and call the police, um, even though that might be what they need to do to start the process of getting help. Now, let's just carry on with um, a further question that relates to um, situations that involve the police. And I want to focus this question on a, a situation in which the family member is behaving bizarrely or dangerously. Uh, the police are alerted. You already have talked about some of the challenges that family caregivers experience in communicating with the police in those kinds of situations. Please say more why family caregivers run into communication difficulties with the police under those kinds of circumstances. Lisa? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the difficulties can be if there is some kind of apparent threat. So as we started to talk about what if that individual is holding an object that could be used as a weapon, the person will be perceived as behaving dangerously or as a potential threat. And there can be a real disconnect between the perception of a threat or it might be a reality of a threat that is perceived by police and they need to do their job and they're not going to put themselves and others at risk. Um, and the disconnect is with what the family caregiver is trying to say, which this person isn't bad, they're not dangerous, they're sick, and we need to use different strategies. And this can be a real issue because there's a risk of harm to the individual if the police are responding to the threat. So some people have said, some clients have said to me that they're so worried about calling the police because if that loved one has behaviors that are aggressive in nature, they're worried that they will be one, one of those people who the police end up 
shooting or responding to in some sort of violent ways just to manage the risk. And then we have inquests that look into this. And it has, there have been multiple situations in my province of Ontario where young people with mental illnesses have been shot and have died. So there's this major issue of communicating that it's a mental health issue and really having police respond to that in a way that family members feel is appropriate. And, I mean, the it's a really difficult situation because the police do need to respond to the threat. And one of the other challenges is the flip side of what if there isn't that threat there? What are police to do? So, like that case with the woman who drove into the ocean, the family member is pleading that, you know, she's going to hurt herself. The police show up and it doesn't look like there's anything wrong. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to detain somebody? Should they pick them up and bring them to the hospital? In I mean, most people, even my clients, the family caregivers, don't feel that we should be picking up everybody with with, um, psychosis and locking them up in a hospital. Nobody seems to think that's the best solution. But where is that balance? How can we take preventative action without seriously infringing on people's liberty? And that is the real challenge because there isn't a perfect solution. Right. Now, I'm still with this theme of family caregivers um, when family members are behaving bizarrely or dangerously and the challenges they face communicating now with hospitals and the healthcare system Mm -hmm. and such problems as they experience uh, to what extent are these created by privacy practices of hospitals or privacy rules and regulations lisa Yeah, so there are definitely challenges to family caregivers communicating with hospitals, and privacy practices can be a large reason for that. I'll just start with some of them that don't involve privacy, and that is, like the circumstance with police, people can calm down. There's also often a very busy hospital environment, and when somebody's assessed, caregivers may feel the person isn't given enough time to really be viewed in you know, the full spectrum and to really have a proper assessment so that it can be decided whether they meet the criteria for involuntary admission or not. So sometimes just that busy hospital environment, things can be rushed, people can slip through the cracks. But in terms of the privacy issues, this is definitely an issue in terms of hospital family communication in many jurisdictions. And that is because privacy laws are patient-centric. There are rules around where information can flow, and it does differ across jurisdictions, but typically information can flow to healthcare providers, not families. And this does make sense. We all want our privacy respected and we want our health information to be kept confidential. Healthcare professionals owe a duty of confidentiality to their patients and the patients need to be able to be honest with their healthcare professionals and and many wouldn't be if they knew information would be shared. So generally speaking, the privacy laws make a lot of sense and we all want to be treated in a way that our privacy will be respected. But in the mental health context, things are a bit different. And family caregivers do often feel like they're not treated like caregivers and that the laws maybe do need to change or the practices need to change around privacy. And so I'll give you a few examples. Family members are often not given information about the individual, particularly if that if the patient doesn't consent to it. If the patient consents, there is less of a concern, of course, because they've provided consent to that disclosure. But if they don't, families feel very stuck. They feel that they're not consulted, even though they have very valuable information to share. They feel like they're not given information about their loved one, even though that loved one is coming home with them and they will continue to be the caregiver. They don't have information about the illness. So I'll give an example. If somebody is having a hallucination or delusion, a family member who's new to all of this might say, should I be playing along? 
should I be pointing out that this is not real? What's the best way to deal with this kind of behavior? Or if they're worried a loved one is thinking about suicide, can I ask about it? Is asking about it going to put the idea in my loved one's mind, or is that going to be helpful? What's the best approach? Getting that information can be challenging, even though it's not about the patient. Some health professionals are so worried about a privacy breach that they really fear interacting with the families and end up treating families like an inconvenience or excluding them uh, just for fear of, of breaking the privacy policies or the privacy laws. Just to expand very quickly on that one, and we only have a few seconds left in this segment, is there any sense in which um, the history of the way in which people with mental illnesses has influenced the way in which privacy rules are interpreted, particularly by doctors and others? Is there any historical background, in other words, Lisa? There is some historical background, and of course it differs in different jurisdictions, but the history of how people with mental illness has been treated has been an ugly history. Um, people have not been treated so well, and there's been more and more of a movement towards patient rights, and that includes people making decisions about what treatment they have, having the right to choose who has access to their health information, and really making the patient the center of their care. Uh, there was a time... I mean, it can still happen in certain circumstances, but there was a time where patients would be given medication and maybe not even know about it um, and would be placed in places that were more like jails than hospitals. So all, all of this history um, provides a context where now there's a real patient rights movement and a huge movement towards patient advocacy because of how people have been treated. And there's a pendulum that swings back and forth from people not being treated well at all to rights that are all about protecting patient privacy and autonomy and some people feel the pendulum needs to maybe come back a little bit more in the mental health context to try to acknowledge there's a very important role of the family caregiver. Right. Now, at this point, we're going to have to take the break again, so we'll do that. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Lisa Feldstein. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice American Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Lisa Felstein. 
Our topic is listening to family caregivers caring for psychosis. Lisa, now let's talk about effective responses to the challenges created by psychosis and psychotic episodes, and particularly the challenges that you've been talking about throughout and especially in the previous segment. So first off, Lisa, what do you see as the most effective responses to the challenges that family caregivers confront when they see warning signs that a family member may be starting with a psychotic episode? Lisa? So there are a number of steps that families can take to try to come overcome some of the challenges. And one of those is that family caregivers can be vocal. And in particular, one, one way is that they should be sharing historical information with police and healthcare professionals. The person who is the patient might not actually be the best historian of their own medical history, particularly if they are in a state of psychosis. The police and hospital might have to rely on their own observations and may actually not have access to the records. Either the individual has never been to that hospital or in the moment there isn't time to pull up the records. So that family caregiver might be the best objective source of the history. And the families can help give specific information to help them make their decision. And I really do think families should be specific. So there are circumstances, like in this case with the woman who drove into the ocean, where families can be very vocal and they can say, you know, for example, if there's a risk of a suicide attempt and they really believe that risk is likely to actually um, become an, an attempt, they can say, my family member behaved X way and last time it resulted in a suicide attempt. I'm telling you, this, you have to listen to me. You have to take this seriously. And family members really can be an advocate. Hospitals are busy. The staff have many priorities, many patients, and so sometimes family members need to be assertive. And I really do mean assertive, not aggressive. I don't think family members should go and get themselves banned, nor should they be so disruptive that they create a rift between the hospital and the family, because ultimately family and the hospital are on the same team. They're all caregivers for the individual. But I think there's something to be said to being vocal and being an advocate and sharing information and and finding out, asking how can you as a family member can be helpful. And also, a lot of families don't know this, but it's possible at many hospitals to book a family meeting. And so some mutual understanding can go a long way if the family has an opportunity to sit down with the hospital and have a discussion about the patient. Right. Now, what are the most effective ways that you see, uh, most effective responses to the challenges family caregivers experience in getting help, you know, finding help and actually getting it? What do you see, Lisa? Well, one of the responses is actually just the general movement towards trying to reduce stigma, because when stigma is the challenge to getting help, even if the resources are there, it's getting over the stigma. So there's been many efforts to try to create awareness of mental health issues and eradicate stigma. So as that continues, I do think some of the challenge of reaching out for help will be minimized. Definitely more resources. People can reach out, but if the resources aren't there, it's very difficult to get the help. And so more resources can mean more beds in a hospital, more community program, maybe more telehealth in some communities where people are hours away from a hospital, so even if they do reach out, that there's somebody there who's able to listen and to provide some of that help. And then one of the other effective responses that family caregivers uh, can use in terms of getting help is getting educated. There are challenges, but some of them can be overcome with information. So, for example, in some jurisdictions, there are legal methods to get that individual assessed. And they might be able to do it themselves. They might need a legal uh, a lawyer, but there can be legal recourse. There can be a method to get that person into a hospital or to get an assessor to come into the house 
and perform that assessment. And sometimes that assessment can be the stepping stone to getting into the system and getting care. Right. Now, we're still on the same basic question, which is effective responses to challenges. And this time, it's the challenges that family caregivers experience when family members who are behaving bizarrely or dangerously um, get the police involved. What are the effective responses that you see, Lisa? So for this one, I suggest family caregivers actually get a pen out because I do have a number of tips for family caregivers that can be really helpful responses when dealing with the police, particularly when a loved one is in a state of psychosis. And that is right from the time the police are called. Family caregivers should let the dispatcher on the phone know that this is a situation involving a mental health issue. That information will be relayed to the people en route, and that can be very helpful because they need to know how to approach the situation, and they will approach it differently, hopefully, if they know it's a person with a mental health issue or a person in a state of psychosis. It's also very helpful to convey any medication that the person is taking, whether the person is under the influence of drugs or alcohol, whether they're armed, whether anyone has been hurt, whether the individual is already involved with some kind of community agency or receiving services from somewhere, whether the police have attended with that person before, if the person has any noteworthy reaction to the police. And then when the police do arrive, I think it's important for family caregivers to greet the police let them know, again, the loved one has a mental health issue because sometimes things do get lost in translation and the me message conveyed to the dispatcher might ha not have been conveyed um, exactly. There can be some broken telephone. So let them know this person has a mental health issue and provide useful information that as a caregiver, you know that they wouldn't. So, for example, I, I have one client who has told me when the police show up, they say, don't speak to, to my family member in a condescending tone. That's affects him in a really particular way, it will provoke him and it will escalate things. So try very hard to manage your tone and don't speak in a condescending way. And also I've had clients who are concerned that they, the police will take a very rough approach, especially if they are there to pick the person up and bring them to the hospital and that might be court ordered. And so they know they're one way or the other, they're leaving there with the individual. So trying to persuade them to be gentle, not aggressive and encouraging your loved one to go with because if they don't go with in a cooperative way, the police will probably be a little bit less gentle and, and do what they need to do to follow the court order. So trying to persuade them to be gentle and persuading your loved one to be cooperative to try to avoid any kind of traumatic or aggressive situation. Now, what do you see, Lisa, as the most effective responses to the challenges family caregivers experience as a result of privacy requirements. And if I could just comment back to you um, about your last couple of answers, what you're in fact saying uh, and arguing and I think um, promoting very effectively is the idea that family caregivers should be advocates. They should convey necessary information so that the people who are responding to whatever it is, the crisis, are as informed as they possibly can be um, relative to the possibility of mental illness rather than something else as the cause of the, all the, of, the, of the situation. So I know I'm lead, I've kind of led my question a little bit, but what then do you consider to be the most effective responses to these challenges of privacy requirements? Lisa? So there are a number of effective responses, but there is a caveat that will come along with it. So one potential response uh, would be 
caregivers organizing and pursuing some kind of lobbying effort in their jurisdiction to propose amendments to the law if the law is really preventing them from getting the information they need or conveying the information they need and ultimately uh, acting as caregivers. Many caregivers, of course, are much too busy caregiving to take on this level of advocacy. So a more practical response could be trying to get information about the illness. So to say to the doctor, even if the doctor can't share any, any information about the individual, to say, I know my child or my spouse is taking X. What are some of the side effects that are common from this drug? Are there any side effects that are dangerous? You know, will this medication affect his ability to operate a vehicle? Because I won't give my son the keys if I know this medication will impair his ability to drive. So trying to get information of a general nature about the illness and about the medication, they really empower caregivers to do their job as best as they can without actually breaching or asking healthcare providers to breach any of the privacy laws. So that's one really helpful way to try to manage some of the barriers or potential barriers introduced by privacy. Uh, I do think healthcare providers, um, some have great training about privacy, others don't, and I have seen times where they don't give information even when legally they're permitted to just because of that fear of a breach. And I think with more privacy training, some of that can be overcome. Um, so that's one of, the, one of the main issues. Some of my final comments, I think, will we'll touch towards the end, so I don't want to jump ahead too much. Perfectly fair. Let's just stay with this question of family caregivers as advocates. That is to say, they're doing the talking, they're conveying the information, and they're conveying the information about their family member for whom they have a deep concern in a particular time because of either things that the family member is doing or saying, which they know full well, or very often know full well from previous experience, are really our warning signs. So let's talk a little bit more, Lisa, about responses to warning signs. Please say more about the effective responses you see to warning signs that a family caregiver knows full well represent trouble, so to speak. Lisa? Sure, but I must start off with the disclaimer that I'm not a medical professional, so a lot of my experience through the legal world is not going to be medical advice and not the best advice in terms of how to respond. So I just wanted to clarify a lot of it's just anecdotal, anecdotally best. about how, how best to respond to warning signs. Um, and one of them really is get help, get information. If you can get your loved one to cease a professional, that's fantastic. Often people refuse, and if that's the case, go out and speak with the professional yourself. There's nothing preventing people from going and scheduling a meeting, reporting what they've observed, and trying to get educated about what the illness might be. For some people, they can negotiate with their loved one, and that might be you need to comply with your medication, or if it's at the very beginning, you need to get assessed or X. So, again, all of this really should be subject to medical advice and, and input, but some people have been successful in saying, you're not getting the keys to the car, or I'm just going to take you, you know, I'm going to call the police, and finding some way to encourage the person, even if that means it's just the lesser of two evils for them to go and get help. Um, in some jurisdictions, there's an opportunity to go to a court and get a, some kind of court order or police authority to, for the individual to actually be picked up and brought by the police to the hospital for assessment. 
Now, all of that uh, goes right back to all the things you've been saying, and that is the sense that these are emergencies that have to be understood for what they are. That is the effects on somebody um, that makes them behave in ways that are abnormal, dangerous, bizarre, unusual, and need to be taken seriously as medical problems rather than anything else. So uh, I'm just summarizing back to you what I've heard. Um, we're going to in a moment go into the next segment and if what I've just responded to you or summarized back to you you don't agree with I'm going to ask you to say so because this is an extraordinarily important topic Lisa so let's now take the break this is Dr. Gordon Adley and my guest is Lisa Feldstein you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio please stay with us we will be back Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Lisa Felstein. Our topic is listening to family caregivers caring for psychosis. Lisa, let's talk about more things that you would like to do and you would like to see done to help with the challenges that we've been talking about that arise from psychosis. Um, the psychosis that family members are living with. So my first question is, what more would you like to do to help family caregivers with the challenges created for them by what they perceive as early signs of psychosis in their family members? Lisa? Sure. Well, I mean, practically speaking, I would like to get the message out and have more people in all different jurisdictions. I understand there's listeners from all over the place but get them to seek some legal advice, just a one-hour consultation, because sometimes getting the person here when they don't want it involves taking legal action, and that can really be 
all that they needed to hear to take that step. I mean, sometimes that does involve police involvement. Sometimes there's other methods. But finding out what is available to them to try to get that person into the, into the system and to get them assessed and also to find out what responsibilities they have. So many people who are family caregivers are also substitute decision makers, and that can mean different things in different jurisdictions. But generally speaking, that can mean that they have the legal task of making treatment decisions for their loved one. And that might be with respect to antipsychotics or admission to a hospital or other health-related decisions. And there can be a lot of responsibility involved with being somebody else's substitute decision maker. And there can actually be consequences in some jurisdictions if the law is not followed. And sometimes that power can actually be taken away if the person is not doing their job appropriately. Sometimes people, people aren't doing the job appropriately and other family members want to step in and take over that role of becoming a substitute decision maker. Some people, particularly parents, want to find out what legal steps they can do to plan for their loved one. And I see this often when people have a child in their 40s or 50s and the parents are thinking about wills and powers of attorney and all of that and what might happen when I'm gone to my child who will take care of him or her, who can be, whether it's a guardian or it's called something else in other jurisdictions, but who will be that person who provides and looks after my loved one, and is there a legal way to set all of this up? And often there is. So those kinds of things um, can be very helpful from sitting down, chatting with a lawyer. I definitely know that clients come in all the time overwhelmed and confused because the system is not clear. There's different sets of laws. I've had clients sit down and try to read the whole law and make sense of it, and they end up even more confused. So it can be very helpful to just sit down for an hour and get some advice and some information and understand the legal system and the health system and how all the pieces fit together and what the options are and what the responsibilities are. Right. Now, what more would you like to see done to make privacy laws more supportive of family caregivers' information needs? Lisa? So this is a tricky, tricky question. So from the purely family caregiver perspective, many people definitely want the law to change where there are perceived barriers. And that makes sense. They want more information and they have the absolute best interests of the patient in mind. They want information so that when they go home, they can provide the proper support. They can help ensure compliance. They can re report back to the healthcare team about side effects. They really are part of the healthcare team. Whether they are legally or not, they play an important part of that. And so for many people, changing the laws where they create barriers is the answer. Now, the flip side to that um, is that some family members could potentially take advantage of that power or abuse it. And I suspect this is incredibly rare, but I have actually seen this happen before, where a family member does not have the best interests of the loved one in mind, and access to that information is not a good thing. And so the real trick is, how do we balance that? How do we figure out, even though most are the good family members, how do we separate the good and the well-intentioned? from the not-so-well-intentioned. And so there's that fear of opening up the privacy law because there will be people who take advantage. And then the second fear is what does that say about people's individual rights in terms of autonomy and in terms of their decision-making. Uh, most privacy laws based around the idea of people getting to consent to who gets access to their information and who gets access isn't the whole hospital. It's usually just the people who actually need it. There's rules around how much can even be collected, 
when it can be disclosed, what like implied consent in emergency situations. There, there's a whole host of rules, and they're typically all centered around respecting that individual. So by allowing family caregivers into that circle of care, we're taking away some, somebody's liberties to a certain extent. So there's that real balance. One approach that I've heard recommended that might have some teeth is not any family caregiver, but really limiting which family caregiver could be uh, part of what's often called the circle of care and what information. So putting some limitations around it. For example, only somebody who lives with the individual and putting some other parameters around it to try to limit who they are and what they are so that we can open this up just a little bit, just enough to be practical. And that might have some teeth, um, but there's obviously the, the controversial and political issues and balancing of rights that has to be considered as well. Now, just to go a little bit further and ask you this, are there circumstances where you would perhaps see, wish for, or oppose the idea that a family or a family caregiver could in effect be recognized for in that role in such a way that they um, are or become members of the circle of care? That is to say, they've satisfied a lawyer, a physician, a psychiatrist, whoever, uh, that yes, they are acting and they believe that they're acting in the best interests of their loved one. Would you ever see, I, I hesitate to use the word licensing procedure, but something along those lines that say, yes, this person is okay in this role. What do you think? I think in some jurisdictions, it could be that the law evolves in that direction and maybe the pendulum will swing back a little bit and create some kind of role. And I think the word licensing, even even if it wouldn't necessarily be licensing, I think that sort of captures it, is that there's a privilege that's being granted, but with it comes some responsibility and some accountability. And maybe that person actually needs to have some kind of documentation to show to the healthcare team or to pass, not necessarily a written test, but to pass some kind of criteria that to show that they really do meet that. And also another option where that might fit into is the consent of the patient's person themselves might consent to that person in that role, particularly if they're in a more lucid moment, but they actually might be able to be consulted and give input. And there are some other non-legal avenues like patient consent that might help address some of the privacy issue. Um, as we discussed earlier, more education, more providing information of a general nature, um, and then trying to balance all of that. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's very final question? What's your message for family caregivers caring for family members who live with the challenges of psychosis and psychotic episodes in their family members? What's your message for them, Lisa? Well, my message is that I see family caregivers all the time, and it is a really, really difficult job. Most people won't understand what you're going through. And for that reason, I often encourage my clients to look into family support groups in their community. It can be very helpful to talk to other people in the same boat who have been there before, who are well-connected about what resources are available, what challenges there are, tips and tricks for overcoming some of those challenges, and also just feeling like people are not alone. So that can be extremely helpful. Obviously, educating themselves about the illness, not and not even necessarily illness, but as you mentioned in the opening, psychosis can be a result of addiction or it can come from other reasons. So finding out as much as you can because your support can go a really long way in helping that person get better and helping them seek treatment. So learning a lot 
and also trying to learn about what some of the triggers might be to either manage the psychosis or if the person seems to be on the edge, maybe to be able to pull them back in before things escalate or help in a way to keep them safe. So I think education is key, and that might include speaking to a mental health professional on your own, going in for a consultation to learn more about how you should act and how you can be supportive, what to do, what not to do, what signs to look for, at what point you need to take action. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it might be helpful to go speak with a lawyer and find out about what law applies as a substitute decision maker or in terms of getting a person treated or admitted, particularly if it, if it involves doing so against their will. Right. Now, um, very unfortunately, but in the best way, um, I'm sorry to say that we've come to the end of this episode. Lisa, um, this has been profoundly valuable because this kind of discussion is is very rare in healthcare because it's so busy and because the the challenges are great and just because of pressures generally. So I want to say thank you for putting out this information so clearly and I hope, if I may say so, we'll have another opportunity to do this. And you mentioned that you really, you really, you are really something of a pioneer in family health law. And what I would like to say to you, and I believe I'm speaking on behalf of our listeners as well, is please keep up that good work because it's vital. It's what's needed. It's what family family caregivers need to know that there's somebody willing to listen to them, willing to advise them, and willing to see their side of the story um, and the type of help that they need. So, thank you look forward to more of this and wish you every success. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Who Cares for Children Living with Autism? Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk with you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.